Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. If you've joined us in the last couple of weeks, you'd know that we're in the middle of a series called Jesus in the Picture. And essentially this whole, this whole series is based around the last words that Jesus says to the disciples on the mountain before he um, rises up into heaven. And it's actually the last words that he says to them and the last words in the Gospel of Matthew. And it says, And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now Jesus' promise is that wherever you go, whatever you go through, he will always be with you. He will always be in the picture with you, and, and I love the premise of this series because I reckon so often it's really easy for us to forget that God's presence is with us, that He's going to be with us to the very ends of the age. We can forget that and we begin to do stuff in our own strength. We begin to do stuff just thinking that we've got to do it all on our own and we do it by ourselves and forget that Jesus is in the picture with us. And so, so far, I've been really enjoying the reminder that this is for us in everyday life. And, now, Andrew started off our series talking about the road to Emmaus and, and the hope that Jesus brought into that picture to the, the people who were downcast and feeling hopeless. And last week, Danny spoke about the peace and, and the stillness that Jesus brings through the storms of life. And she used that, the, the story of when Jesus calms the storm for the disciples on the boat. And uh, this morning, I'm going to be talking about how when he enters the picture, when Jesus enters the picture, he actually sets us free from shame. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And over the, the course of this series, we've been using some classic works of art, right? Some, some, some old and, and famous works of art. And I want to preface this morning by saying that I am no art buff by any means. If, if I'm being honest, when I've looked at some of these pictures, they've seemed a bit dark and a bit drab. And so I, I don't understand. I, I haven't heard of any of the artists so far. This morning's artist, I still don't. I should have looked up how to pronounce his name. I don't know how to pronounce it yet. But that's okay. The only artists that I do know are the ones that were famous enough to become Ninja Turtles, right? So you got Michelangelo, Donatello, Leonardo, Raphael. And to be honest, I don't actually think they're all artists. <laughs> they might be. I, I, th- I feel like one of them's a sculptor. I don't know if that's an artist. I don't understand art, okay? That's the, that's the thing I'm trying to get out. But what I do think is that actually in our midst here, we have a couple of incredible artists. And I know that because I see every Sunday morning after kids' ministry is finished, the kids walk in with their awesome masterpieces, right? With their, with their pieces of art. And, and they get to do that each week. They, they draw pictures of Jesus and, and, and stories in the Bible. And they see each week what happens when Jesus enters the picture. And you know they do it because they love it. There's something about the creativity of it, right? There's something about making something from nothing, from making something with just your hands, It's awesome. There's something exciting about the colours and and making them come to life. And to be honest, I don't think it's that hard to be able to draw a picture and understand the Bible story behind it. And, you know, I'm sure a bunch of these artists that we've been looking at are very talented. But I just want to do a real survey, quick survey right now. And so we've got a photo up on here drawn by a kid. If we can get that up, Jaken. Anyone know what Bible story this is? Yep, yell it out. Noah's Ark. Fantastic. It's not that hard to draw a story. What about the next one? What about this one? Moses and the burning bush. This next one's my favourite. But this, yeah, what's this one? Have you ever seen Samson drawn? I think that's awesome. Those arms are the same size as his torso. Okay, this last one, what's this one? This is a bit tricky. It's done on a computer. Right, Jesus calms the storm. That's what Danny spoke about last, last week. 
That's not easy to get the, the story across in a picture. Now, a picture's meant to tell a thousand words, so surely it's all right to just get it to spell out one key message. And so the, 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 the photos that these kids have drawn do that. They tell us a story. And so it doesn't seem that complicated, but this picture behind us today is a picture from today that we're going to be talking about. This is called the woman... Oh, what's it called? Hold on, let me... I can't remember. This is called Christ and the Woman Taken in Adultery by Sebastiano Ricci. Richie, R-I-C-C-I. If you know the artist, I'm sorry. But this is, this is the artwork for today. As I said, a bit dark, a bit drab, like the other one. I like the Noah's Ark one because it had a lot, of, a lot of character. But I reckon something happens. I'm going to get that photo just taken down for a second, Jake, and if that's all right. Those photos that the kids have, there's something about when a kid draws a photo, right? There's a sense of pride that they feel over. I've seen the kids walk out of our kids' ministry and hand their pieces of art to their parents. There's a, there's a pride. Look, mum and dad, look what I've accomplished. Look how good it is. They want it to be prominent. They want it to take pride of place in the house. They want to frame it. They want to put it on, a, on, the, on the refrigerator. They want it to be prideful. So they have pride. They, they, they want it to be loved, and, and they know that they've done this hard work, and they want everyone else to appreciate it. And I don't know about you, but I think there's something that happens when we get older that we begin to become a little bit embarrassed by that. I, I hate to say it, but I think sometimes there's a shame that begins to develop in us as we get older. I don't know about you, but for me, I don't draw pictures anymore. I don't go colouring in anymore. And I think it's because of that. It's because of the shame. And I think it hits each of us differently. Right? As a kid, I used to make uh, Father's Day cards, Mother's Day cards, birthday cards for my parents and for my family. Right? We'd make them in Sunday school. We'd make them at normal school. I'd make them at home. We'd cut out magazine cutouts. We'd stick them together. We'd glue them together. I, used, I remember drawing a lot of birthday cakes and a lot of Christmas trees on cards and I remember when I, when I drew these, when I made these, I felt so much pride. I'm like, mum and dad are going to love this. This is going to bless them. Look how talented I am. And there was a real sense of pride in it, knowing that I'd done this for my mum and dad. It was going to be an awesome gift for them. But then at some point, I stopped making them by hand and cutting out magazines and I worked, moved over to Microsoft Word because they had a really cool um, art folding thing that you could do. So I started using clip art and word art and um, I'd make them on Microsoft Word, and then I'd still have a sense of pride about that. It's a little bit more professional. But then at some point as well, I stopped doing that. And I wonder at what point in my life did I just decide that a Hallmark card is going to be just as good as anything else that I can make? At what point in my life is that what I decided? And I reckon for me, and I understand there's still people here today that like to draw and like to colour in, and that's awesome, and you should do that. Because I think each of us feel the shame a little bit in a different way. And, and for me, obviously, I, I, I grew out of that. But it's different for everyone. And, you know, this year, for Father's Day, I was actually really blessed to get a handmade Father's Day card. But as some of you might know, Zoe's way too young to actually make me a Father's Day card at the moment. And so I got a Father's Day card from my dad. And I can't... I've had trouble getting it up on the screen today, so you just have to use your imagination. But this is a custom-made, handmade Father's Day card. It comes full with magazine cutouts, colourful writing. There's a lovely message inside. Even more important, there's a Baker's Delight 20% off gift voucher. <laughs> and this is meant to be reminiscent of the cards that I gave my parents as a child, that I've stopped doing that. And so I probably wouldn't do that anymore, but we all feel shame in different ways. And so I understand that it's going to be different for everybody. We all feel it in different ways, but I reckon the truth is, is that everyone in this room has felt shame or felt embarrassment or guilt in their life before. 
We've all felt it, and, and that's what I think the main character of our Bible story is feeling today. And we'll get that photo back up if that's all right, Jacob. So this is called Christ and the Woman Taken in Adultery by Sebastiano Ricci. I want us just to have a look at this. We're going, to get, we're going to read the scripture in just a moment, but I want us just to have a look at this artwork. You can see the main characters right in the, in the middle, the woman, her shoulders are slumped. She's kind of looking down at the floor, not looking at anyone else. You can see Jesus is next to her. He's kind of pointing to something that he's written in the ground, and he looks like he's teaching an old man to the left. There's a younger man sitting down as well, trying to look at what Jesus has drawn or written, and it's an older man pulling him away. And then in the background, you can't see it as clearly, but there's a lot of onlookers. There's a lot of people just observing. There's some people climbing up on a statue in the background, just observing what, what is happening on, what is happening in, this, in the picture here. And I want to read us this story, but before I read it, what I want us to do is actually place ourselves in this picture. Before we get into the story and find out who says what, what happens, I'm sure a bunch of us already have an idea of what's going to happen in this story, but I just want us to imagine ourselves in this circumstance. Maybe you're replacing one of the people in the picture. Maybe you're photoshopping yourself in and you're just going to be there as an observer and you want to, you want to watch on with it. But I'm going to read it and I want us to imagine ourselves in this picture, okay? It's going to be reading to us from John 8, 1 to 11. It's a bigger, bigger text, but I'm just going to jump right into it. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John 8, 1, 11. It's going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to imagine that picture in your mind. I think you're up for the challenge, but just want us to place ourselves in this story, okay? John 8, 1 to 11, it says, it's, a, it's called a woman caught in adultery. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him and, sat down, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only with Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. As I read that story, I'm not sure how you imagine yourself in the picture, but just for a moment, I want us to take a look into the perspective of the woman in this story, right? You've been dragged out into the middle of the temple where there is a large crowd gathered. You're already feeling the shame and the embarrassment of being caught in adultery and, you, and you're paraded around in front of a group of men that have already decided that you were so dirty that you deserve death. You're lying in the dirt, feeling morally dirty and totally ashamed. There is hatred in the hearts of your jury and rocks are in their hands ready to condemn you. And even more, you're just a pawn in their game. You don't matter. Your feelings don't matter. You were just a means to an end. But then Jesus steps up out of the crowd. Jesus steps into your picture and he protects you. He defends you. He fends off your accusers and he says to you, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's a, that's a hard picture to imagine ourselves in. 
that's a heavy picture. You know, maybe right now you're not lying down in the dirt. You don't have accusers ready to, to throw stones at you with, with hatred in their hearts. But I reckon all of us have felt that feeling of dirtiness or shame. We all know what it feels like to know guilt and embarrassment. And my encouragement for us this morning is that just like in this story, today Jesus is still stepping into our picture. He says to you today, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. You know, shame and condemnation are not from Jesus. I reckon so often we can see them from Jesus. Like we can associate shame and judgment and guilt with Jesus. And I think it's because occasionally we link certain people to Jesus in our lives or we link certain structures or certain religious organizations to Jesus. And so if those people have made us feel shame or or they've made us feel guilt, we associate that with Jesus. But I want to promise you this morning that shame and condemnation is not from Jesus. They're just not You know, in this story, Jesus is being tested by the Pharisees. He's actually been putting under pressure in order to judge this woman. But still, in this circumstance, even though they're trying to trap him, Jesus isn't passing shame. Jesus isn't um, judging this woman and making her feel guilt or embarrassment. You know, to understand this trap that the religious leaders are are trying trying to get Jesus into, we actually have to look at the context of the story a little bit broader, right? So we're looking in John 8, but in the previous chapter, John 7, we see Jesus at the the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a seven-day feast in the Jewish calendar, and there's a whole bunch of different things that happen as part of this celebration. Um, And one of them is this thing called a water-drawing ceremony, right? I think I talked about it a little while ago, but it's called a water-drawing ceremony where the religious leaders, they go down to a, a pool called the Pool of Siloam, also known as the Living Water. And it's called this because it's always fresh. It's got healing properties. It's where Jesus um, healed people in some of the other stories as well. It's called the Pool of Siloam. So the religious leaders, they pick up this water in these golden vessels. They take it back up to the altar. They pour it over the altar as they pray for Jesus to come and and give them rain to replenish their crops. It's just one part of this feast that happens here. And and this happens every day of the feast. Every morning of the feast, this is happening. And and it kind of gets more and more extravagant as it goes on. It, it, It it erupts in a big celebration on that last day. And on this last day, we see Jesus stand up and he begins to teach. And in his teaching, he says to the people there, hey, actually, if you're thirsty, you need to come to me because I'm the living water. You drink from me and you'll never grow thirsty again. And this is a big statement for this time, right? This is a big statement. So what happens is that Jesus has actually divided the people. So some people are saying, oh, that's cool. This guy might be the prophet we're expecting. Others are saying, you know what? No, he's not a prophet. He's actually the Messiah. And then there's others who are just thinking that he's this crazy person. And so the Pharisees, they have a dilemma on their hand. There's this guy who's ruining their religious traditions. He's saying stuff in their eyes that is absolute heresy. And so they decide they need to put an end to it. So they try and trap him. They try and find evidence to accuse him. And they use the woman to do that. You know, as I, as I read this story, as I look at this picture, one of the first thoughts in my mind is, wait, it's not only a sin for a woman to commit adultery, right? That's not what the law says. It's a, it's a sin for everyone, but it's only the woman that is here. Where's the other person? It takes more than one person for this to happen. They're not in the story. You know, the Pharisees are referring to this, this law that's written in Deuteronomy when they say the law says, Moses' law says that we need a stone. They're referring to this law in Deuteronomy that, that kind of determines what sins are punishable by death, punishable by stoning, all of that sort of stuff. But in the law, it actually says that the man and the woman need to be punished. But where is he? 
He's not here, right? And so in this, I feel like the, the, the Pharisees have shown their hand. They're actually not that fussed about the law. That's not what they're here. That's not what their agenda is for. They're not conserved about preserving it because they're not following it themselves. Actually, what they want to do is they want to use it to find leverage against Jesus. They want him to feel humiliated and embarrassed. You know, they want to get rid of this person who is, who is derailing their teachings and they want to drag this woman into it with them. They put her through all the shame and humiliation. You see, the Pharisees thought that in this situation, Jesus had only one of two options. Either he could say, yes, you know, the law says that we should condemn her, we should stone her, we should judge her. But you know, the tricky thing of that is that at this time, the Jewish people, they're under Roman rule, they're under Roman occupation, and the Romans have made it illegal for them to be able to decide who to execute in their midst. And we see that as they take Jesus to Pilate later on in John they're not allowed to do it. And so if Jesus was to say, you know what, that's what the law says, we should stone her, he would have been arrested by the Romans for, for, for going against the law. But on the other hand, if he was to say, if he was to declare mercy on her, if he was not to judge her, he would have alienated himself amongst the Jewish people. Now he could have said, there's no grace in this, there's no mercy in this, we shouldn't stone the girl. And he would have alienated himself. He would have been disobeying the Mosaic law as well. But he doesn't do either of those things. See, the Pharisees thought they'd caught Jesus in the tension of choosing between Roman and Jewish law. They'd trapped him. There's no way out. Either he would anger the, the, the Romans, he would, he would anger the officials of Rome, or he would alienate himself from his people. But Jesus does something that no one expected. Right? The Pharisees think that they've trapped him, but Jesus breaks their expectations because he doesn't follow one of their two options. He doesn't say, yep, come on, let's do it. Let's go ahead and get done with it. Let's stone her. But he also doesn't plead with them not to. He doesn't break the law of Moses. Instead, he actually calls out what I think is their hypocrisy. Instead, he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You see, the Pharisees, they came and they wanted to talk about, about the sin and shame of this woman. But Jesus seems to ignore what she's done at this beginning and, and almost goes to point the finger at the Pharisees. You see, they had this woman, they dragged her into the middle of the temple, they publicly humiliated her in front of people, parading her shame and sin just as a ploy to get to Jesus. You see, the Pharisees had shown their cards. If they wanted to follow the law, if this was about the law, they would have brought the other person in with her. But they didn't. Their heart wasn't to do what was right. It was to trick Jesus. And they didn't care who they hurt along the way. This woman was just a pawn to them. Someone to get used and abused to help their point. In the Pharisees' minds, they were only thinking about the law as it related to an outward act. Right? To outward behaviors, physical behaviors, things that can be visibly viewed. They were only thinking about the law in the way that this woman had sinned. They only wanted to talk about the visible acts of sin, the things that they had seen. But Jesus, he, he kind of ignores that. And what he wants to talk about is the law as it relates to their heart. Now, when I read this scripture, it's, it sometimes feels as if Jesus is kind of ignoring the sins of this woman at the beginning. And, and instead, he's accusing the accusers, saying, all right, if the law says stone her, let any one of you who hasn't broken the law stone her. He didn't say yes or no. He, didn't put he just put criteria about it and made them look at themselves. 
He changed the finger. He changed the finger from pointing at the woman to the accusers. And he did this by drawing in the dirt as well. And, you know, Scripture doesn't actually say what it was that he was drawing on the dirt. You know, there's heaps of ideas around what it could be. Perhaps he was writing some of the other, the other laws in Deuteronomy. Perhaps he was writing some of the sins that maybe the Pharisees would have committed. Some people think maybe he was drawing a picture. He was doodling. Others think that maybe some theologians that I was reading say that it actually might be some form of a protest, because in this day the, the Pharisees had started making different rules around the Sabbath and whether you can write on the Sabbath and all this sort of stuff. So maybe it was a, an act of, pro, uh, of protest on Jesus' behalf. But I think for me, when I look at this story, it doesn't really matter. What Jesus writes on that dirt doesn't affect the story, doesn't affect the picture as a whole. Right, if God wanted us to know it, he would have put it in there. It would have made sense and we would have understood it, but it's not. And that can leave us wondering, but I don't actually think it changes the story at all. You know, in fact, what I actually find more intriguing in this story is that it clarifies the order in which the Pharisees walked away. I don't know about you, but I find this interesting. It's, it says, at this point, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Right, they begin to leave one at a time from the oldest to the youngest. I don't know about you, but that, that intrigues me. I wonder why. And you know, there could be another thousand reasons as to why it's written like this and as to why the oldest went first. You know, perhaps it's because those old, the older people had endured more of life. Maybe they'd matured and sombered to the fact that they haven't done everything right in their own life. And maybe they understand that their experience might be different to everybody else's experience. They don't understand everything. Maybe they have regrets in their life and, and they carry those regrets for the life that they've lived. You know, perhaps the younger accusers are a little bit more arrogant in the way that they interpret the law. Maybe they believe, they understand how it uh, interprets in every circumstance. They understand how it should outwork in every single situation. And maybe these younger people, they've seen the older Pharisees, the ones they look up to, they've seen them leave and they thought, you know what, maybe there's wisdom in that. And so maybe that's why the oldest leave first and the youngest leave after them. It, I'm not entirely sure there could be a thousand different ways as to why it's written in the Bible like this. But I think regardless, there's actually a lesson in this for our young people especially. Now when you're younger, it's easy to think that you have life all figured out that everything makes sense to you, that there's, there's something that happens most of the time as you get older is that you begin to understand that your experience of life isn't the only experience, right? Everyone else has different upbringings. Everyone else reacts to the same circumstances with different emotions and, and interprets things in different ways. And maybe a decision that seems bad from the outside looking in is the best decision available in that circumstance. And so I think the challenge for us young people, I'm putting myself in that category, yes, <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I mean really everyone, but the way that, the way that this, this scripture is reading to me makes me think of our young people. My challenge is not to be too quick to judge. Don't be quick to analyze someone else's decisions with your outward, outsider perspective and, and judge them in a harsh light. It's so easy to do. Right? It's so easy to see what, what someone else has done or, or what someone else has, has said or overhear something that they've been doing and just think, how dare you? How dare they? Who do they think they are? I can't believe they said or they did that. It can be so easy to belittle someone or to talk behind them, behind their back because you have judged them against your own experience of life. Now what Jesus is saying here is let the person who has never done anything wrong be the first to cast the stone. 
You know, the reality is that we've all done something wrong. We all fall short of the glory of God. And you know, maybe you've told a lie when you shouldn't have. You know, maybe you've done something to hurt someone else mentally or physically that you shouldn't have. And maybe you've taken something that you shouldn't have. Maybe you've seen or you've watched something that you shouldn't have. Maybe you've said something that you shouldn't have. Unfortunately, we all fall short. We're all broken people. So who's to cast the first stone? My challenge is to be slow in your judgment. Be patient in the way that you deal with people. Maybe it's not as malicious or offensive as you first thought it was. Now try and see the person's other side. Be willing to listen. Be willing to learn and, and, to, and to learn from another perspective. Don't assume that you're always right, but be willing to learn. It's a hard challenge for our young people, but I think you're up for it. Jesus is saying, hey, you can't judge others if you have sinned yourself. You're just as sinful as everybody else. I think it's so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy for us to forget what we've done. And there's this this scripture that says, "How, how can you say to a friend, let me help you get the speck out of your eye when you're too blinded by the log in your own? And I'm reminded of this when when I look at this scripture, and I think it resonates today. My challenge for our young people is don't be quick to judge. But be ready to listen. Be ready to learn and hear another perspective. All right, let's jump back into the story. So here we see that the, all the accusers have left. They've left from the oldest to the youngest. And what we have left is just Jesus and, and the woman. And it, and it says here that Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, if the person without sin is to cast the first stone, if the person who's done nothing wrong is to cast the first stone, then that person is Jesus, right? He's part of the Trinity. He's the person who wrote the law. And so it makes sense that Jesus is the person to pass the judgment, but his response isn't to do that. Now, actually, when I look at Jesus' response to this woman, I see that there's almost these four movements to the response. It's one response in four different parts that I want us to unpack this morning. Kind of like classical music. They break classical music up into smaller bite-sized pieces so for a little bit of contrast so it's easier to listen and to play. And I know classical music, classical art. What a renaissance man. Renaissance? I don't even know how to say the word. So there we go. Now it's a perfect analogy of what I think this is. It's four movements. Four different parts to this one response that Jesus has to this woman. And so it says, firstly, it says that he faced her, right? He straightened up and he faced her. He straightened up. He stood up from the ground, from the messy dirt where he was defending her, where he was saving her. And then he stands up and he faces her. He meets her right where she's at. She was brought to Jesus by her accusers. Her shame was on display for all to see. She was humiliated in front of him, but he defends her. He defends her and then he looks to her, I imagine, with eyes of grace and mercy and he, and he doesn't turn away from her, offended by her shame. It doesn't scare him. Instead, he treats her with dignity. He stands up, he straightens up and he talks directly to her. They both know that the sin and the shame are there, but it doesn't affect the way that he meets her. Jesus isn't afraid of her shame and so he straightens up, he faces her. That's the first movement. In the second movement, it, it says that he questions her. He says, woman, where are they? He asks, where are they? Where are your accusers? They're not here. 
They've all gone. Where are your judges? No one here has condemned you. Jesus knows the shame and the sin and the guilt and the humiliation that this woman is feeling. But he says, who around you is allowed to judge you? Now everyone else, they can hurl their nasty insults. They can say judgmental things, but there's only one person who can judge you. The person who is without sin. Only one person. And and what does that person say to her? He says, neither do I condemn you. And that's the third movement. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. He forgives her. Jesus knows her entire life story. He knows her sin and he knows her shame. He sees her humiliation, but he straightens up and he faces her. He acknowledges that he is the only one that can judge her and then he forgives her. He forgives her. He pardons her for her sin. They both know what she did wrong and she could have continued to live carrying that shame for the rest of her life. But Jesus says, I forgive you. And he actually encourages her to step out of that. He forgives her. He says, I see your sin, I see your shame, but you don't need to carry it anymore. It's forgiven. And then in the fourth moment, he tells her to move on. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. He challenges her. Jesus, just, Jesus doesn't just forgive her and, and tell her to carry on. He calls her to something greater. He challenges her to better herself, to start a new life Right, he acknowledges her sin and he forgives it. He says, there's more than just your sin in life. There's more that you can be. There's so much more that you can be. And all you have to do is turn from this sin and have new life. It's a new birth for her. You know, I came across this quote recently and it, and it just says, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Right, the quote's acknowledging that we all fall short of the glory of God. Now, even if you've been saved, there's a past that you've been saved from, right? If you've been rescued, there's sin that you've been rescued from. But even more, every sinner has a future. In his rescuing, in his saving, you have a future as well. Not just here on earth, but in heaven. And you see, Jesus calls this woman out of her sin and calls her to leave behind her past and and into a new life. Go and leave your life of sin. He calls her into something new, something greater, something better. And I know that there are people here this morning carrying those feelings of shame and carrying those feelings of guilt and sin as they approach the throne of God. I just know there are. You know, maybe you feel like that shame smothering you this morning. Maybe it's smothering you, stopping you from approaching Jesus. Maybe you feel like you need to be dragged out to Jesus' feet and judged. Maybe the people around you have made you feel like that. Maybe they've made you feel ashamed or, or you're scared of their judgment or maybe that's something you felt in your own mind. You've, you've felt your own shame from the stuff you've done in the quiet of your own mind and, and of your own space. And I wonder, is that shame smothering you this morning? And for others of us, I reckon, maybe there's some of us here today that, that shame's kind of just gotten, like a, become a normal part of your life. You're so used to carrying it that sometimes you've forgotten that it's there. Shame and guilt has become a part of your everyday life. Maybe there's something that you've just wanted to shake, but you haven't been able to do it. And so you've just become accustomed to the shame and this guilt in your life. And it just feels like that's what life is supposed to be like. And it's not. That's not the truth. And no matter matter what camp you fall into, maybe you feel like your shame is smothering you, getting in the way of encountering God, getting in the way of approaching His throne. Or maybe you just sense that there's that shame in the back of your mind that you just can't seem to shake. I reckon 
bunch of us this morning need to be reminded and experience these four movements of Jesus' response. He's already defended you. He's already paid the price for your sin. Your accusers, they've been turned away. Jesus has won the battle. He's won the argument. He's come to your defence and now He's standing in front of you. He comes to meet you where you're at. He's standing in front of you. He says, where are your accusers? They're not here. No one is here to accuse you. It's just me. And I don't condemn you either. I forgive you. I know what you've done. I know how you've sinned. I know how you've hurt me and others and yourself. And I forgive you. I see your shame and I set you free. Now go live a life free of sin. Live a life for me. Don't live out of that shame or guilt anymore, but live in the promises I have for you. Live in the hope that you have in me. And I reckon that's what Jesus is wanting to say to a bunch of us this morning. Remember those four responses that that He faces you. He meets you right where you're at. He says, hey, who's making you feel this shame? There's no one here that can judge you except me. And I've already forgiven you. You've forgiven in me and now I want you to go and live a life free of sin. I want you to go and live a better life. And so this morning, as we come to a close, I don't, as we, as we respond, I don't want us to walk to the front. I don't even want us to raise our hands. I just want to pray for us. And so if you're feeling that shame, I want to encourage you to allow that, this prayer to just echo in your heart right now. Allow it to, to set you free. Be reminded of Jesus' response for you. And allow it to set you free from that shame. So come on, why don't you close your eyes, bow your heads as I pray. Jesus, we want to thank you that you meet us right where we are. You know us intimately. You know the ins and the outs of how we think and and how we operate. You knew us before we were even in our mother's wombs. And Jesus, we thank you that you love us. That you love us so much that even when we turned away, you made a way for us to be united again. You made a way for us to live in relationship with you. And and Jesus, you know the hurt we've caused others and and ourselves and the hurt that we've caused you. You know what we've done wrong. You know our sin, our humiliation and our shame. But Jesus, you set us free from it. You call us out of our shame and into a new life with you. And God, right now I want to lift up those of us this morning who might be carrying those feelings of shame and guilt, humiliation. God, maybe right now it feels like it's smothering us or or maybe they've just grown used to it. Regardless, would you be reminding us that shame is not from you this morning? Instead, you draw us into a higher calling, a greater life of freedom in your name. God, I want to pray against shame here this morning. Would you be breaking through walls to remove it from our lives? Would you be breaking through habits to remove it from our lives? Loosen the hand of the devil as he encourages us to sit in that shame and draw us out of it, God. Would you continue to set us free into a new and greater life in you? And we thank you that you were here, that you were moving in our lives. Would you help us to know more of your heart through us, more of your love and your grace towards us? We know that there's no condemnation found in you. And God, would you help us to grasp that in our hearts this morning? We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you saved us. Together we said, Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and our locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.